0: Thank you for listening to this podcast brought to you by Reach Life Church in Asheville, North Carolina. Our mission is changing life by making, growing, and unleashing gospel-centered disciples of Jesus. For more information, resources, or to connect with us online, visit www.reachlifechurch.org. Hey, my name's Terry. I am one of the pastors here, and we are continuing, as you can see on the screen, in our new series on the parables of Jesus. And um, we have been taking a look at sort of lessons from the Master Himself, and you know, if you are—I th- I told this to my MC this past week—if um, if you kind of grew up in church or if you have a recent history in church, you may be familiar with these uh, parables of Jesus, these these passages in the Bible, and may be falsely tempted to kind of like brush over them. I would encourage you not to do that. Um, Again, Jesus, of course, is the greatest teacher of all time, and that is, of course, because He is God, and so we have a lot to learn. So these passages of Scripture are just gold mines, and we're going to do our best, James and I, uh, to kind of skim the surface, and I would, we would encourage you to dig into them at home. There's going to be a lot more there. Today, though, uh, I, we come to a particularly tough passage, and... Um, these are difficult teachings for, from, from Jesus. They're not going to be difficult to understand. They're, they're difficult to do. Um, they're pretty straightforward. Uh, so honestly, um, if you find these things uh, difficult to kind of take, and as you think about them difficult to do, I'm with you. you know, we, we are rowing in the same boat, man. Uh, but these are good things for us. Um, and if you following, have been following Jesus in a serious manner in your life, particularly if you've been following Jesus in a public manner in a serious way for any length of time, you know there's a cost to following Jesus. and So that's what we're going to talk about today. And and already you're like, okay, so this is going to be one of those (laughs) difficult things. And it it is. um, There's a cost to following Jesus. Persecution uh, has been defined this way. This is the idea of persecution. It's a situation where people are repetitively, persistently, and systematically inflicted with grave or serious suffering or harm and deprived of, or significantly threatened with deprival of, their basic human rights because of a difference—race, religion, nationality, uh, political opinion, membership in a particular social group—that the persecutor will not tolerate— and we see that these kinds of things that we just read about are increasingly being experienced by Christians. Uh, I'll read you some quick statistics in just lat- numbers from last year, according to the 2022 World Watch List. Over 360 million Christians living in places where they are living in places where they experience high levels of persecution and discrimination. 5,896 Christians were killed for their faith last year. Last year, five thousand one hundred and ten churches and other Christian buildings were attacked. Four thousand seven hundred and sixty-five believers were detained without trial, arrested, senten- sentenced, or imprisoned. You know, in east uh, Eastern and in Eastern countries and in Africa, uh, persecution of Christians is public, right? And, and in many ways, applauded. Um, in Europe, particularly in the UK, and here increasingly in America. We see that, like, our persecution is kind of under the radar or uh, out of sight. It's usually in a courtroom uh, being done legislatively or even in like shadow banning and social media. Um, But it's increasingly becoming part of the public conversation with Christianity. Of course, the greatest form of persecution is martyrdom or being killed for your faith. Now, note, this is not martyrdom, like so-called martyrdom that some religions, uh, practice where you kill others for your faith. This is where you would be true martyrs, uh, killed because of the faith that you practice. And many followers of Jesus have been killed from their, for their faith, just from the beginning, the inception of the church. This is not a new phenomenon. A lot of the apostles, we know Philip, Matthew, Mark, Peter, Paul were martyred. Uh, many were martyred in the middle ages. Um, some of the reformers. Uh, Between 1540 and 1570, some 1 million Protestants were publicly put to death in various countries in Europe. Overall, some 50 million were martyred by the Roman Catholic Inquisition for heresy uh, between 606 and the middle of the 19th century. Again, we had um, some 20 million were martyred during the 70 years of Russian atheism and communism, 20 million. Uh, More Christians were martyred in the... Hear this. More Christians were martyred in the 20th century than in all previous centuries combined. This is not a thing of the past. You may not have known that. Currently, over 200 million Christians are being persecuted worldwide, and about 165,000 Christians are martyred for their faith every year. So again... This is not a thing, persecution of the Christian church and us as Christians in general is not a new thing. This is kind of part and parcel of, of being a Christian throughout history. Right now, like our time of relatively low persecution is an anomaly in the history of the church. Where we live and when we live, uh, experiencing Christianity as we do is the exception, not the rule, right? We, we've, we've had it easy for a long, a long time. But how can we make sense of the martyrdom and the like, true, real persecution in times past and in other parts of the world even today? Is it because those who are heavily persecuted and or martyred for their faith, is it because they were somehow sinning and therefore God brought judgment on them? Have they somehow missed God's plan and ended up being persecuted? Is it because of their lack of faith? If they just trusted God more, these hardships wouldn't come to them? No. None of those things. On the contrary, the Apostle Paul tells us in 2 Timothy 3.12 that it is a normal part of the Christian life. He says, indeed, how many? All who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. That's pretty plain, isn't it? That's pretty plain. Again, we don't currently experience that where we live and when we live. It's not currently happening here. But we can see kind of the, the walls closing in, if, we, if we're paying attention, to these, particularly the social walls closing in. Um, there's a social stigma of Christians, particularly the Christian worldview or our, our view of morality, and how we believe that things should be done is, is ever increasingly seen as negative in, in our culture. And you know, that, that culture makes um, opinion and opinion makes law. So, we're not, it's reasonable to think that we're not in Kansas anymore, right? We may have a Christian memory as a, as a, as a nation or as, as, a, as people, individuals we may have come, come from a Christian environment or whatever. Um, but that we're quickly losing that um, if we were ever really in it to begin with. Um, Thankfully, Jesus uh, is a good shepherd. He has not left us without direction, and he wants to prepare our hearts for what could be the shape of things to come. Jesus, uh, thankfully, um, has some things to say, uh, say to us on this Idea of difficulty as a Christian, and no more famously than in our passage today, Luke 14. You can go ahead and turn there, Luke chapter 14. Uh, as I said, this is going to be uh, this is a controversial passage, by the way. You're going to hear some controversy here, right? Some, some controversial things. Um, but I, I think there's I think there's wisdom, obviously, from Jesus, and there's th- I think there's great things for us to learn today. Luke 14. We're going to be, uh, begin in verse 25. Follow along in your copy or on the screen there. It says, Now great crowds accompanied him, Jesus, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Now let's pause. I told you that was going to be tough, right? Jesus starting out um, full blast here. Verse 27. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, cannot be my disciple. Verse 34, so salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is of no use, either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown away. He who has ears, let him hear. Okay, (laughs) lowly Jesus, make him mild. Here Here we go, right? Like Jesus... Jesus is bringing, bringing the fire here. He's just laying things out really plainly uh, for us. These are, that's why these are traditionally uh, included in a, some of Jesus' teachings called the hard sayings of Jesus. They don't get much harder than this. Um, the interesting thing, if, you, if you're taking notes, you may want to write some, something down here. One of the interesting things is as Jesus goes through these hard sayings for us today, some of these things he says about the cost of following him, we can tend to overestimate what he's asking us to, to consider to be a cost, and other things we can underestimate what the cost might be. Sounds, sounds weird, but hang, hang in with me. Hang in with me. Um, so what exactly is Jesus saying to his, fo- his followers, and, and by extension us in this passage today? Well, verse 25 gives us kind of the setting. Jesus has been traveling toward Jerusalem, uh, since the end of chapter nine and Luke records Jesus' itinerant teachings kind of outside Galilee there. Jesus would go around teaching um, maybe sort of uh, what we would consider today like street preaching. He would He would meet. and he would alternate between teaching his twelve apostles in private and then going out in public and teaching, you know the, the masses. And um, it's crucial to understand that where we are today, Jesus is teaching the crowd. The reason that's crucial to understand is because these hard sayings are not like for, quote-unquote, elite Christians. These are for all the Christians. These are for, like, all of us. Um, this word, if you, if you were to do, like, a, a word study on this word being translated disciple it simply means follower. It does not mean you have to be the apostle Paul, right? Like a green beret, navy seal Christian for these things to apply. It's just if you are a follower of Jesus. In fact, nowhere in the Bible is there a distinction that there's like an elite Christian, elite follower of Jesus, and then there's like you know there's a few of them and then there's like all the lowly Christians That's not the Bible doesn't do that. That's not how Christianity works, right? If you're a follower of Jesus, you're a follower of Jesus. Right? And so this is to all of us. Besides, in verse 26, Jesus explicitly says this applies to anyone. You see that? If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children, etc. This is for it. This is for us. These hard sayings are for all of us. So I'd inc- I encourage you, don't, don't like bristle at these things. Remember who's teaching. This is Jesus, who died for our sins, who loves us. He is teaching these hard things to all of us. So I would encourage you to lean in to what Jesus uh, says here. So there's a they kind of come in couplets. Jesus gives these analogies or parables in pairs. And the first pair is about the cost. It's in verse 26 through 27. And in verse 26... Jesus says that following him may mean losing family connections. Let's read it again. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, and even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. This is, these are like graphic things. Um, these are, this is the classic example of a hard saying of Jesus. But I want you to be aware that this is one of the things that we can overestimate the cost that Jesus is asking, asking us to bear. Because I would, I would argue that Jesus is not telling you literally to hate your mom and your dad and your, your, your wife and your brothers and your sisters in your own life. Jesus is not saying that. Um, unlike I, our words for love and hate in English, the, the Greek being used here and, and kind of influenced by Hebrew Old Testament backgrounds don't refer to emotion, they refer to commitment. Love and hate, as spoken here, are not emotions. They are terms of commitment. It's expressing loyalty is what Jesus is getting at. Now think about another context where love and hate can mean choose and not choose. Right? Think about uh, Malachi 1, and, which Paul quotes in Romans 9, where God says, Jacob I loved, but Esau I hated. Right? He's saying, Jacob I chose, Esau I did not choose. Uh, This is seen again, Jesus quotes a similar thing in Matthew to a different group of people, Matthew chapter 10. He says, anyone who loves their father or mother more than me. You hear that? That, That's the comparison. Jesus is saying it's a degree, it's loyalty. Anyone who loves their father or mother more than me is not worthy of me. Anyone who loves a son or daughter more than me is not worthy of me. In other words, Jesus is saying that yes, indeed, we are to love our parents and our wives and our kids and our own lives, particularly other people, we are to love them deeply. But our love for Jesus should be so much stronger that if our families, those whom we are in relationship with, force us to choose between them and Jesus, then we'll choose Jesus every single time. We will, as, as the old song says, "You can, you can have this whole world." Give me Jesus is what the follower of Jesus is being asked to have as their, um, as their, their their posture, their mindset, their loyalty to Jesus. So we can we can breathe. Jesus is not asking us to hate our, our family, um, but Jesus is still presenting. Though we can overestimate it, there's still a great challenge here in what Jesus is saying. He is saying that. Where do, he's asking, where does your loyalty lie? Our commitment to Jesus should be ultimate. Now, if, listen, if you're a husband or wife, you may think, man, I love my husband. I love my wife. If you're a parent, I love my kids. Well, Jesus is saying, if, if those people draw a line between you and them or you and Jesus, the question is, would you choose Jesus? Do you realize that there are people all over the world who are, who are presented with that dilemma? Listen, if you're going to follow Jesus, you can't be part of this family anymore. Right? That's a reality. It may not be like your reality, but may, it could be if, you're going to be. if you're going to follow Jesus seriously, your family may, may push you at, at a distance. You're like Jesus-y, right? You're a little too Jesus-y. We're going to keep, keep you at arm's length. We may face that, and even under that social pressure, will we choose Jesus would be the question for us. So a real question might be, can we describe ourselves that way? Can we honestly take a look at our own hearts and say, you know what, if I'm confronted with the choice of any relationship versus Jesus, I will choose Jesus every time and I know it. Could we describe ourselves that way? Just put a finer point on it. Could somebody from outside our lives, looking into our lives, would they describe us that way? Would they say, I know that person right there. I know that if it comes down to the brass tacks, they will choose Jesus. Um, Again, some people are not only facing being ostracized because of that. They're facing death because of that. In some countries in the world, like, for example, in some countries, if you are raised in, a, in a, a, an Islamic family, and, and according to way, the way they do it, um, you uh, are anathema if you become a Christian. So, again, these are, these are tough things, um, but it doesn't only apply to the people in, in countries like that, it, it applies to us. Are we even... Um, think about your relationship with your friends. Are you willing to be ridiculed for following Jesus? Or will you kind of rein back or, or, or put uh, like a veil over your relationship with Jesus so that you're more accepted socially? Uh, these are hard. Like a lot of us think, you know, I, 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 would, I would die for Jesus. Like if my family said they're going to stone me for following Jesus, I'd do that. Go out in a blaze of glory, right? But the day-to-day thing is a little more difficult, I think. Will you live for Jesus? Which means dying daily to those things. Will you live for Him? Um, they these things apply to us as well. Um, you know, it, just to put a uh, an- another little priority thing on it, parents, you you want to provide a strong financial foundation for your children, right? You want to provide a strong educational foundation for your children, right? Okay, well here's the question: Those are good. Those are good things, but is your priority Jesus in the life of your child? Do you want to provide a strong spiritual foundation for them? And if it means sacrificing part of the the financial foundation, or I can't send them to the school I want to send them to, will you choose Jesus for your children? Would be a good question. What Jesus is asking priority, right? What's your it, it, uh, kids? Um, Students, young adults, are you, like? let's say you don't have parents who love Jesus that much, but you feel like, you know what, I realize what Jesus did for me. I want. In fact, I think Jesus may be calling me to be a, a Christian counselor or a missionary or something like that. Will you choose Jesus? Will you choose Jesus? So that's the first thing. In verse 27 then Jesus talks about the cost of following him being uh, or involving bearing a cross. And here we can underestimate what Jesus is asking us to bear. In verse 27 he says whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. Well, we overuse this term. Well, that's my cross to bear, right? Like we diminish what what Jesus is is really saying. The cross this cross back here represents Jesus dying on our behalf. That's what we mean. Right? He carried the cross. right? He, li- he literally did that uh, to die on our behalf. So Jesus is asking, previously, you know, he's kind of asking, will we live for him? Here, he's asking, will we die for him? Not that he needs us to, like we needed him to die for us, but it's because he's worthy. Will we daily die to ourselves. You know, when it comes to the desires of our bodies, for example, the lust of the flesh, the desire of our eyes, the pride of the things that we possess, will we die to ourselves in those everyday things? That's taking up a cross. It's choosing to die to myself in order to follow Jesus. He fleshes this out in verses 38 through 32, and he says that following him is going to require sober humility. Sober humility. There's twin parables here he uses to illustrate this point. First, he uses a building analogy. Verses 28 through 30. Jesus says, For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. This is one of the things where we can overestimate the cost, okay? Jesus is not saying that you have to know everything that God will ever ask of you Uh, in the future, you know, some revelation from God where, you know, everything he's ever going to ask you to do and say, yes, I will do those individual things. Uh, And then, yeah, then I can become a a true follower of Jesus. Uh, Dr. Craig Blomberg and his commentary, he's one of my major uh, sources for help on this message today. He says this about this truth from verses 28 to 30. He says, Jesus is saying that we must realize the amount that commitment could cost. If we are not, at least in principle, prepared to surrender every area of our lives throughout our entire lives, then we are not making Jesus our Lord or Master above all human masters, including ourselves. In short, we're not becoming Christians. And surrendering every area means including the touchy areas of our lives, that we don't do well talking about in Christian circles, perhaps most notably that famous triad of money, sex, and power. You hear what he's saying? Like following Jesus is saying Jesus is Lord, right? Lord and Savior, that's, that's who Jesus is, right? Right? Now, now, following His commands and, and, and doing the right thing and, and abstaining from the wrong things don't make you a follower of Jesus. We get that by grace through faith, but true followers of Jesus call Jesus Lord, and, and we agree with Him, right? We agree with Him. Are we willing to say Jesus is Lord? Are we? I assume that for most of us in here, the answer would be yeah. I, I, yes, I, I'm a follower of Jesus. Jesus is Lord, but I want us to... Um, I want us to put a a little bit finer point on it. We need to pause and ask specifically some areas. Yes, Jesus is Lord, but how about Lord over my concerns about status in life? Yes, Jesus is Lord, but how about Lord over my money? Yes, Jesus is Lord, but how about Lord over my sex and lifestyle choices? That seems a little different, doesn't it? These are real things to consider, aren't they? These are the harder questions we need to ask ourselves in, in, um, in terms of our view of and relationship with Jesus. And I want to just pause here and say, we're going to, you know, like at the end of the message, we always have a time of response. We will do that again today. These are the types of questions I would encourage you to kind of have circulating in the back of your mind. Yes, Jesus is Lord. Yes, But for me individually, am I I currently in my life saying Jesus is Lord over status or money or sex or lifestyle choices or you fill in the blank? Am I currently, ask yourself that, ask the Lord to reveal that to you, and I believe that he he will. Um, And be ready to answer those questions at our time of commitment. The second parable Jesus gives about this, I call it sober humility. That's taking real account of myself, right? Being humble about it, having a sober look at it is in verses 31 to 32. He says, or what king going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and deliberate whether he's able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000? And if not, while the other is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for the terms of peace. And again, Jesus is saying, count the cost, right? But here the st- he kind of ratchets it, you know, forks out, stakes are high. You know, raise, raise the stakes. He's, he's ratcheting up what is being asked here, because here in war's time, bad judgment can cost your entire army, right? Like this, 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 is, a, this is a big deal. And so we can't, we got to be careful not to underestimate what Jesus is asking here. So the first parable tells us to count the cost of following Jesus. And what I'm going to say here next may shock you. Um, but surprisingly, I believe this second parable asks, tells us that we can't afford to pay the price of refusing Jesus. We got to count the cost of following him. We also have to count the cost of. Not following him, right? There's a, there's a cost with both. Now, now, time out. You may say, well, I don't, I'm not necessarily like follow Jesus, but I wouldn't say I'm opposed to Jesus. I'm not meeting Jesus in war, you know, like I'm not at war with Jesus. Well, uh, Jesus would say otherwise, Matthew chapter 12, verse 30, he clearly says that whoever is not with me is against me. Whoever does not gather with me scatters. Says Jesus. Um, so there's, there's this analogy here that, that Jesus is given. There's, there's several different ways that commentators take it. Um, but I believe, in context, the way this reads is that, uh, and, and Blomberg and, and many other scholars agree, that in this, this analogy, Jesus is the superior king. And we are seeing Jesus coming from afar off. And if we meet Jesus as our enemy, we will, we will be demolished. Jesus is saying in this parable, make terms of surrender. Right? Jesus is saying, be wise. Don't meet Jesus as the enemy. You realize that, that Jesus, who, who loves you, who died for your sins, is going to be the judge of heaven and earth? Think about that. Now, now he offers to, to take your judgment, right? But judgment is is, is sure, and Jesus is, is saying, don't meet him on the battlefield. Meet him in terms of peace. See him coming from afar off and say, Jesus, you're king. I'm not. And he says, he sees that in verse, verse 33. You see that, right? He's asking for all. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all, what are the terms of peace with the great king who we see coming from afar? The terms of peace is all. Remember what the gospel is. It's an exchange of life for life, isn't it? Jesus says, uh, Terry, you're a sinner. And I'm like, by God's grace, I know that, <laughs> right? I know. And I know I can't save myself. Doesn't matter what I do. I can't make my good works outweigh my bad. I don't even know what my bad works all are. And um, Jesus says, okay. This, I, I, Jesus doesn't literally say these things, right? Like I'm, I'm describing what's going on. Jesus says, okay, I died for you. I gave my all, my whole life, for you. How much of your life will I save if you surrender to me? All of it. How much of your sin will I wipe away if you surrender to me? All of it. Right? It's a life exchange, and Jesus is asking for us to surrender all. So what do you find yourself, diagnostic heart question here, what do you find yourself not willing to give up for Jesus? You know, like for me, like I had a, I had a like a Christian background, but there, as I began to search and I began to realize, you know what? Actually, Jesus really is who He says He is. I really can't trust the Bible. Um, there's, there were some things, uh, choices that I was making, um, relationships that I wanted to hold on to that I wasn't quite willing to. Sur- I knew Jesus was going to ask me to give them up, and so I put the pause button on Jesus. I had some things that I wasn't willing to surrender. And maybe you do too. Um, Again, is it your career or your standard of living or your house or your cars or your relationships or, or sports or recreation or travel or sexual choices? Whatever those things are, they fall into that category that says all. Right? The category that says all. That's all that Jesus asks us to surrender, everything, because he did on our behalf and because he's worthy. Now, let's be clear. Very few of us ever will be asked to give up things like our standard of living or our house or our cars or our relationships, sports, our health, whatever. We're not, we're not all asked to like literally Give up those things, right so don't overestimate that you don't, you're not supposed to sell all your stuff and go live in a cave and worship Jesus. Here's the question though what is the posture of our heart does does do I own those things or does Jesus own those things? That's the question. and would I be willing if Jesus taps me on the shoulder of my soul so to speak and says, You need to give this up for me. I'm going to take that from you. It's going to hurt, but it's going to be for my glory and for your good. Will you trust him? Is the question. Does Jesus own those things or do I own those things? He's asking us to surrender our time, our talent, our treasure. Verse 33, again, So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple. Uh, here's a great definition of this is what worship of Jesus is, definition of worship coming up. Worshipping Jesus is all that I am in surrender to all that He is. Right? That's what worship is. Uh, there's more to it than that, but that's a, that's a good, you may want to like take a, a picture of that with your phone or, or write it down. Um, you know, most of us will not face martyrdom like I read at the beginning, but we do face these daily decisions. And this is what worship looks like all that I am and surrender to all that he is. Well, Jesus kind of closes in verses 34 and 35 with a really practical way um, that we can do this uh, of surrendering to him. And it's in finding ways to share our faith often wisely, convincingly, and as tactfully as possible. I call it staying salty, right? Stay salty. Verse 34, salt is good. Now, remember, this is in the context of these parables or what it means to count the cost and surrender to Jesus. Salt is good, but if salt has lost its taste, how shall its saltiness be restored? It is of no use, either for the soil or for the manure pile. It is thrown away. He who has ears to hear, let him hear. What is salt used for? Well, you know, salt is used to preserve things, to protect things, to purify And so in this body of believers, if we are salty among one another, we will preserve one another. We will protect protect this house, right? We will protect one another. We will help purify one another. That's what it means to be salty in a church family. We'll do the same thing in the culture, right? There are redeemable parts of the culture. Do you guys realize that? We will seek to preserve those things. We will seek to uh, protect those. We'll seek to purify, redeem those things for God's glory and the good of those around us. That's one use of salt, but salt is also used to make you thirsty. Do you know that? Like in, in a bar, that's why they serve you chips and pretzels and like whatever those little peanut things are, right? They, they make you thirsty. We are to be salty. We are to make people thirsty for the water of life and help them to know that Jesus, who offers to give us the Holy Spirit, who will well up in us a river of living water so that we never have to thirst again, Jesus is the only source that will ever make them truly satisfied. Finding their, their importance or worth, and, and any of these other things will never satisfy. We are to make people salty by the words of our mouths, by the way we live our lives, and help them know that only Jesus satisfies. You probably have heard Augustine say that God has made us for himself, and our hearts are restless until they find their rest in him. Uh, a French philosopher and mathematician Blaise Pascal said that there's like this God-shaped hole in the soul of humanity that only God can fill. And our job, our joy, our privilege is to help other people see that by being salty among them. Well, that's going to cost something. Being salty is going to cost you something. There's a surrender involved in that. Uh, One of my uh, professors says it this way. He says, see, Jesus not only saves us from sin, he saves us for himself And He saves uh, saves us to go out into the world. God saves us for Himself, or from our sin, for Himself, to the world. Uh, George Robinson, one one of my professors, I thought he he nailed that. And this will involve sacrifice. So I just want to spend just a second to, to flesh that out. If you're going to be salty, if your life, the way you live, is going to make people hungry for Jesus... If my life is going to make people hungry for Jesus, then I can't do everything I want to do. Oh no, <laughs> right? I can't, I can't live in a way that would bring a, light, a bad light upon Jesus. If I'm going to be salty, if I'm going to help make people thirsty for Him, I need to show them what Him looks like, right? What He looks like. So I won't be able to make all the choices that I would normally make. That's a sacrifice. I have to have my testimony above reproach. right, listen, let's just be real honest. This is something that uh, the Southern Baptist Convention flushed down the toilet recently. I know it's harsh language. Folks, we cannot do that. We must make. God help me not to do that. We must make Jesus lord because he's worthy and because we want people to know him we can't follow our flesh jesus doesn't deserve for us to that's that's, there's a sacrifice there also to be salty again is going to involve us getting out of our comfort zones and equipping ourselves to remove intellectual and emotional and relational and other barriers that people have to jesus If you've ever tried to walk somebody through their questions, you know that's hard. There's work involved, man, right? Like, get out the shovel because you're going to have to dig. There's a sacrifice in that. It means, you know, I I can't play as many video games as I would like to play. I can't read read as many physics books because I need to be reading apologetics books, or I can't read whatever a tabloid that you want to read. I don't know what people read. I read, I read non-fiction, nerdy books, so I don't know what, what the rest of you guys read. But I, I have to choose what I, what I spend my, my mental energy on, not just because of a brain injury, but because I need to be equipping myself to be salty. There's a sacrifice involved, and in it. it's hard work. Uh, if You're going to need to invest your, your time in helping other people grow spiritually. Raise your hand if you've ever tried to mentor somebody else. Is it hard work? You bet it is. You are always more concerned about their spiritual growth than they are. Or else they'd be be mentoring you, right? Like you always will be. And you know it, it requires sacrifice, man. It requires time and effort, and it's taxing mentally and relationally and physically, there's a sacrifice involved, and Jesus is saying he's worthy. <laughs> and it's for the good of others, and it's for our good. So I told you that we were going to come to a time of commitment. Well, here we are. How will we respond to what Jesus has said to us? This, this is a hard I told you guys, I'm rowing in the same boat, man. Like uh, these, What Jesus is asking here is very plain, but it's not easy. If it's easy, everybody would be doing it. You guys know that, right? Like, um, and counting the cost of discipleship may look or or of um, of, yeah following Jesus may look differently for you specifically than it does for me. I don't know what God's asking you to sacrifice, but I have an idea that you might. (laughs) You might know at least some things that God is asking you to sacrifice right now. So in response to what Jesus has taught us here, um, I would encourage you to ask here in just a moment of prayer to consider what does God, what does it mean for me to count the cost? Like you individually, and I'll I'll be asking the same thing for, for myself. What does it mean for me to put it all on the line and say Jesus is Lord over everything? I'm choosing Jesus. True disciples will ask that question. What does it mean for me to count the cost? And then true disciples will obey. And we will ask for help because it's too hard for us to do by ourselves. It doesn't just seem too hard, it is. True disciples will also fail. But we won't be cast out. True disciples will repent when we fail. In other words, we will ask God for forgiveness and ask him to help us change our ways. We will believe the gospel that Jesus paid for my failures and that he can enable me to follow him and keep his commandments and then we will return to him with renewed commitment empowered by his spirit. That's what followers of Jesus do. And so are you willing to be a follower of Jesus? Well, count the cost, make the choice, follow Jesus. This won't be easy to do. But it should be the easiest decision to make in the world. Because it means we don't have to carry our own sin. It means I don't have to be separated from the author of life, love, and eternal peace ever again. I can live life as it's truly meant to be in relationship with the one who made me. It should be the easiest decision in the world. It'll cost us, but Jesus is worth it.